You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Ron Mars. You are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi there, welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Today's interview is a special one with writer Ron Mars. And I get to talk to him about his work on Silver Surfer, which is sort of his entry into the comic world. And we find out how he got started, his relationship with Jim Starlin, how that kind of uh, led him into writing the Silver Surfer and Thor. Uh, we kind of dig a little deep into some of the, the, the Silver Surfer stories that he's done over the years. And we stick pretty close to that. We don't really explore uh, any more of Ron Mars's long and accomplished career. We'll save that maybe for another interview another time. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, you can join my Epic Collection group on Facebook as well. Just search for Epic Collections. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thunderquack if you want to help us keep our podcast afloat, get, a, get some access to some exclusive interviews and such. Um, and that's, I think, about all I have to say about that. Let's just get right on to the interview. This is Silver Surfer writer Ron Mars. Of course, you're best known for a lot of your cosmic stories. Did you have an interest in the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe before starting uh, with Marvel? You know, not really more so than anything else. I, I think out of anything, I was probably more interested in stuff that was more street level like Daredevil and really more mythic like Thor because those were really the two books that I was a, the biggest fan of. It's not like I had a disinclination for any of the cosmic stuff. It just, but it, it just wasn't uh, maybe the top thing on my pile. Although I obviously read a bunch of it, and and I was a was and still am a big fan of what Jim Starlin did, and and Jim is the one who brought me in. So I was able to take over Surfer when Jim stepped away to do Infinity Gauntlet. Now, when you say Jim brought you in, uh, what do you mean by that? How did you meet Jim? Jim and I have been friends for, oh, geez, uh, I guess more than 30 years now. I was just a kid when I met Jim. I met him uh, because we lived in the same area, and I was friends with Bernie Wrightson from doing uh, doing a story for my college newspaper, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, on, and we got, we got to be... Um, Got to be pals with Bernie and attend his parties, and I ended up meeting Jim, and then just sort of got got drawn into the social circle of you know Starlin and Wrightson and Terry Austin, Fred Hembeck, Joe State, and a lot of the comic professionals that lived in the Hudson Valley in upstate New York. And uh, Jim and I just hit it off, uh, got to be good friends, and Jim actually had me copy edit his uh, first prose novel. Uh, because I was a journalist. I was working uh, at a daily newspaper as an editor and writer. And Jim had me copy edit his novel. And uh, when I got done with it, he said, geez, you're, you know, <clears throat> you're pretty good at this. Do you ever think about writing comics? And whenever I tell the story, that that moment is always like, that's somebody asking you if you want to play third base for the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, of course, but you don't think it's actually going to happen. But Jim, you know, Jim showed me the ropes and, you know, took me into Marvel, introduced me around, co-wrote my first few jobs with me. So when he was ready to step away from Surfer because of the workload of Infinity Gauntlet and relaunching the Warlock monthly book, mm-hmm. somehow or other, uh, he convinced them to hand me Surfer. And that was my first regular gig. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's great. Now, for us readers, it seemed like a really smooth transition between Jim and you. Like there was you couldn't you couldn't really feel a difference. Um, how did you work together uh, during this transition time? You know, it was really mostly mostly Jim sort of sitting down with me and showing me the format of a script. And obviously, I was reading comics anyway, and I had uh, 
you know, uh, I had taken a bunch of film classes in college and, you know, this, this wasn't completely like, you know, it was, wasn't like I was working the counter at McDonald's and then they handed me Silver Surfer to write. <laughs> right. I was already writing and I was already familiar with visual storytelling. Jim really taught me that, that comics, obviously, unlike film, are still images. You know, you, it's writing a comic is different than writing a film script because you, when you write a comic, you are writing still images, or as he called them, frozen moments in time. And it is the writer's job to pick out what those moments are, are like on the page. So once I sort of got that, uh, you know, got got the practice of the script format and, and writing the script down, Jim kind of just let me do what I, you know, just let me sink or swim on my own. He kind of roughed out the first few things that we wrote together, he, he roughed them out for me. Like, here's here's the story. And I sat down and wrote them. And then he went through and, you know, tweaked stuff here and there. But but they were essentially my scripts. And I figured if Jim Starlin was was okay with uh, with me writing stuff and his name being on it, that, you know, along with my name, um, that I had to be doing okay. Now, these stories that he roughed out and you scripted, this was the Dynamo City story, right? Yeah, yeah. That was actually the first stuff. I think the first stuff that I that I wrote was a Silver Surfer Annual. The Silver Surfer Annual 3, I believe, was the first script that I ever sat down to write. Oh, okay. And then the backup in that annual was, um, was originally going to be written and drawn by Jim Sherman, um, who, you know, did Legion of Superheroes in the seventies and, mm-hmm. you know, had, had a fairly lengthy track record, also a friend of Jim's. And, um, Jim was supposed to write and write and draw this, this backup story. And, um, he disappeared down in the Yucatan Peninsula into the jungles. Couldn't get a hold of him. He was down there on, on vacation and in some locations that, that I had actually visited with, with Jim, with both Jim's, I should say. Okay. Um, a year or two earlier, but Sherman was still down there and he didn't, you know, he didn't show up. He didn't uh, get back in touch to do this backup story. So they handed it to me with, with Ron Lim. And that was the first thing I had written solo. Uh, and, and ultimately the response to that story was, was pretty good. So I guess they figured they would let me stick around a little bit longer. So we did those. And then, um, then the Dynamo city stuff, I think followed after I'm not sh- the Dynamo city stuff might've come out first, but I know the, the annual was what I wrote first. That was uh, your first step into Marvel Comics. What do you? What were? What were your thoughts when you were getting introduced to you know all the people and coming into the office? Because you know, like you said, this was sort of the dream, right? Oh yeah, it's you know it's fairly terrifying. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> you're you're pretty nervous about the whole thing because you're walking into a completely new situation, and and obviously this is something that you want to go well. You want to keep doing it. So uh, it was kind of nerve-wracking, but ultimately it was it was a pretty relaxed atmosphere, and everybody, you know, everybody treated me like like I belonged. Uh, everybody treated me like somebody that they didn't need to usher back out into the lobby and stuff me back into the elevator. Um, and obviously, a great deal of that has to come with the you know comes from the fact that you know I was there either with Starlin or with his blessing on those first few trips into the Marvel offices. And, um, you know, that carried a lot of weight. And I've, in fact, I, I spoke with, uh, with Fabian Nicieza, um, not that long ago. And Fabian was working in sales for Marvel at the time. Right. Before he moved over to Marvel, uh, to Marvel creative completely. And Fabian actually said when they would, you know, they saw my name on some of the stuff with Jim and then on some other issues, and they were like, "Well, who the who the hell is this guy? Where did he come from?" <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, but they but they figured, oh well, Starlin says he's all right, so he's he's probably okay. Nice. So having that stamp of approval was what allowed me to get my foot in the door and and keep my foot in the door. Now, when you took over for Starlin, you were thrust into the middle of the Infinity Gauntlet tie-in issues. Uh, did you find that that was uh, a challenge to try and write stories, um, especially since you're first kind of starting out here, write stories that have to take place within a pretty tight continuity? It, well, well, you know, at that point, I'm just elated to be doing comics, period. So, you know, whatever job you put in front of me, I am happy to do, and it's the best job in the world. Yeah. 
at the time I didn't really give it a whole lot of thought. It was just that's just what the gig was. And I had you know I'd written a few issues here and there before that, so I had gotten my feet wet, had a had a bit of a sense of what I was doing. You know, in retrospect, looking back at it, it was the best training ground I could have possibly had because mm. I was working in a very tight box with those issues. So my first eight or nine issues of the of the book were all of these Infinity Gauntlet tie-ins, and as you said, you know, you're, essentially you're you're telling a story that takes place between other stories, and the job is to make that story coherent on its own but also tie into the larger picture you know i had to tick a lot of boxes on those stories but the enthusiasm of doing it for the first time i didn't really understand that i was you know getting a test of fire by doing that stuff i was just thrilled to be doing it so in in the long run it was great um i guess in the short run it was pretty great too uh because i was i was writing superheroes and i was working with ron Lim. so it was kind of instrumental for me to learn the lesson of playing in a big playground with others, um, which is what essentially a shared universe is. And you have to, you know, you had to play nicely with others and the others included your editors and other editors. If you were borrowing, borrowing characters, all of those are skills you have to develop if you're going to work at Marvel or DC, because you're just borrowing somebody else's toys to play with them. Uh, and, and there's a lot of give and take in how you play with them. And did editor Craig Anderson help you through this process in these early Silver Surfer issues as well? Yeah, Craig was great. Uh, he, you know, he uh, just accepted me and treated me as, uh, you know, treated me as just another creator. He he taught me some stuff that uh, I still carry with me to this day. But generally, he was, you know, he was totally relaxed about it and just let me. He let me do the job he hired me to do. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of kibitz singer looking over my shoulder um to great extent those early issues of surfer are pretty much exactly like i wrote them one of your very first uh large stories is the herald ordeal uh, you introduce a new character morgue there's a lot of stuff in that story that kind of had really big ramifications for surfer uh can you tell me a little bit about coming up with the herald ordeal well, that was actually the first story I wanted to tell. That was when I sat down with, with Craig once they had either decided to give me the book or I was auditioning for the book and I just didn't know it. You know, when I sat down and talked with Craig and wrote out the first, the first you know, story pitches that I was, I was going to tackle, I, you know, the Herald Ordeal was the was first and foremost. That, that's the first story I wanted to tell. Nice. We just didn't get to it until like the second year I was on the book because of all this other stuff came up. Right. Infinity Gauntlet tie-ins came up. And then, you know, Craig was fairly insistent that we needed a return appearance by Captain Reptile in the book. <laughs> okay. Kind of felt like, really? That's what the masses are calling for is Captain Reptile coming back to the book? But, you know, that, that was part of the give and take of learning the job. It's like, well, the editor says, how about this? I'd really like to see this. And you kind of go, well, okay, let me see if I can make that work. So, you know, there were a bunch of issues that just had to, you know, that were the the tie-in issues, we had to do those. And then there were issues that, for one reason or another, we had to get, um, we had to get out there. Like in the, in the issue 60 to, you know, 60 to 68 or so or something like that. And, and then we sort of ramped up the Herald Ordeal and so that with the final chapter of it would be a big, um, would be a big deal in issue 75. How do you go about creating a new character like Morg? Uh, pretty good, I guess. I mean, I, if they make an action figure, I get royalty, so that's kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, but it was, you know, there, there's the excitement of just playing with those toys and, and getting to run around in that universe leads you to create stuff. It's part and parcel of the job. You know, Stan and, Stan and Jack, uh, particularly Jack, created stuff in damn near every issue of Fantastic Four or right. Stan and Steve and John Romita and in Spider-Man, there was new stuff all the time. So you sort of want to add to that tapestry <clears throat> more tyrant. Some of the other characters I created yeah. were just me with unbridled enthusiasm, adding stuff where I could. One of the big changes in that Herald ordeal uh, storyline is that uh, you, you created the ne- the cyborg version of Nebula and how thrilling is that to see on the big screen now? 
I created the cyborg version of Nebula. Nebula turned into the cyborg in the Herald Ordeal storyline. I, I honest to God don't even remember that. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, okay, well, you know what? That's fine. Um, no, please, you know, obviously, please explain it to me because now I'm intrigued. Oh. It is, I mean, I know Nebula was a character that had obviously appeared before I, I got my hands on her and mm-hmm. Jim had, had used her quite a bit previously. It's it's interesting to, you know, to see some of the characters that you think are maybe sort of throwaway. And to a, to a certain extent, Nebula was kind of throwaway yeah. in some of the runs that she appeared in. I mean, I, I wrote... Um, I wrote Dr. Minerva uh, in a surfer issue. Right. And apparently Dr. Minerva is in the... In new, the Captain Marvel the, movie. Is the Captain Marvel movie. Yeah, that's right. You, you just have no idea what, where things are going to... You know, you have no idea where things are going to crop up. I, I'm, uh, I haven't seen it yet myself, but I know there's a, there's a Janice Vell action figure now, which is a character that Ron Lim and I created, Captain Marvel's son. You know, if you had told me 20 years ago that there'd be a Janice Vell action figure. I would have called the guys with the white coats. <laughs> but that's the dream of every creator is to have a, a, a character that you create that has a long-lasting impact. Well, I think ultimately the dream of every creator is to have a character you created appear in a movie because they write you a much bigger check for being in the movie than they do for an action figure. <laughs> I guess that's what I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it it is sort of pinch me kind of stuff because now we're getting into... I mean, I grew up in a in an era when Lou Ferrigno painted green was about the best you could hope for. Right. And and now to have you know, well, I've used the example before. Now to have not only an Ant Man movie but a sequel <laughs> to the financially successful and critically acclaimed Ant Man movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. we've certainly you know we've crossed the Rubicon into into completely different territory. What was your a thought process behind the death of Frankie Ray. Why did you, did you just kill her off because of the impact that it would have on Silver Surfer? No, I, it, to me, it was, uh, it was much more about trying to, uh, trying to justify someone going to serve as Galactus's herald willingly. Hmm. Um, yeah. Because you know that you, uh, when you, fulf- when you fill that role, um, you are, uh, party to genocide on a planetary scale. Yeah, that's what Galactus does. He he eats planets, and if you happen to be living on that planet, unfortunately for you, you you're part of it. So, some of the first surfer stuff that I did, and and sort of playing off of a lot of what Jim did, was dealing with um, dealing with surfers' guilt and complicity serving Galactus, and the fact that that Frankie Ray followed him into that service yeah and obviously did things that uh that led her to be complicit in that the story was really about justifying that and and trying to um trying to come up with uh well what what is your fate if you are complicit in that and thus far we had seen a lot of different heralds of galactus who were in one way or another either kind of unwilling or or serving him reluctantly and the concept that really drove Harold ordeal and and in particular the creation of morgue was what if galactus gets a herald who really likes his job who's really into that whole uh, let's go murder planets aspect of the gig so that's where that's where morgue came from um and, um, you know, I kind of firmly believe that the dr- dramatic stories have to have dramatic consequences. Um, so that was um, that was where uh, Frankie's death came from. I could understand alien beings being complicit, you know, st- serving as the herald of Galactus. Hmm, yeah. I wrestled much more with uh, how a human could do that. You could assume that aliens have a different set of you know, moral platitudes and strictures, but for a human to willingly sign on for that and do the job, there's a, there's a price to be exacted. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Just a minor question here. Uh, I've always, this is something I've always wondered. How do you pronounce the name of the woman from the spinsterhood? Ganymede? Ganymede. Ganymede. Okay. I've wondered that for years because I've never heard it actually pronounced Ganymede. (laughs) 
you know, it's not like we made that name up. Ganymede is a moon of Jupiter. I just like the way it sounded. Oh, okay. Yeah, I uh, I guess I should have Googled it then. <laughs> I guess I would have found that out. Okay, that's that's great. That's an answer that I've that's to a question I've had since I was a kid. You have another sprawling epic uh, with the, the Blood and Thunder crossover story. Um, you were writing Thor at the time. You mentioned earlier that Thor was one of the books that you really enjoyed when you were growing up. So I am assuming that when you got the chance to jump on that book, it was even more exciting than Silver Surfer. Oh, I was totally excited to do Thor. Um, my my run on Thor turned out to not be what I wanted it to be by any means. Oh, but I was excited to do Thor. We we ultimately, you know, getting the chance to do Thor really again came from Jim because they they came to Jim and said, "Would you be interested in taking on Thor?" And he said yes as long as I would co-write with him. He didn't really have the time to uh, devote full energy to another title while he was also working on infinity stuff and warlock and all that. So the notion that was that, you know, we would co-write for six months or whatever, and then Jim would step away and I'd take over the book and everybody was cool with that. Ultimately, neither Jim nor I were real enthused about the artist that they put on the book. Okay. They had actually asked us, they being editorial had asked us, do you have anybody you want to work with? And I suggested Cully Hamner, who was just doing Mosaic over at um, over at DC. So I called Cully, who I was friends with, and said, hey, is this something you might want to do? And he was totally enthusiastic, banged out a sort of, this is what my Thor is going to look like piece. And that that illustration actually hangs in my in my office here. Nice. I've still got the original. And, you know, we sent, we sent the piece into Marvel. It's a great looking piece of Thor. And we sent the we sent the piece in and said you know Cully Hander will come over from DC and and take over the book with us and they said oh we already hired somebody oh wow <laughs> <laughs> so we ultimately got no input into the artist and neither one of us were the artist wasn't bad he just wasn't at all the vision that we had for the book yeah and um, it was it was a year on a book that I that I dearly love and and simonson's thor run is still my favorite run of all time Mm -hmm. Um, but it just never quite worked out the way we wanted it to so we did blood and thunder which was uh jim's two warlock books and surfer and thor so we you know we had a we had a big well thunderous storyline right but the you know the, the the book around which it all uh all centered thor was just not what we had we had hoped it was going to be. Um, Jim stepped away from the book after two issues, and I um, I lasted a year. Did a few things that I that I ultimately am fond of. I, the Thor Annual I actually like quite a bit. After that first year, we had a plan going forward, and we just couldn't get on the same page as editorial because editorial couldn't decide what they wanted whether they wanted Thor on Earth or in space or in Asgard, and you know, I think when you're when you're faced with one of those situations where editorial doesn't quite know what it wants, but they're not responding to the kind of things that that I was suggesting, it's one of those situations where it's probably just better that everybody goes their separate ways and they can start fresh. What was your original vision for Thor? Like, what would you have wanted to do if everything had gone your way? Well, I don't know that the stories would have been that different, but it was just... Um, you know, these are these are visual stories, and if you're not enthused about the art that's on the page, it makes the gig pretty tough. Right. Um, you know, ultimately, I wanted to do more mythology-based stories. I wanted to do a lot more stuff in Asgard, and I think editorial towards the end of the run was really thinking, well, let's you know, let's go to Earth and have him fight the Absorbing Man. Let's do that's let's do those kind of Thor stories. And my take on it was that. I liked those kind of stories as well, but I always felt like the the juxtaposition of Earth and Asgard was really the the meat of Thor. The, mm-hmm. the fact that he was in both locations, and we we couldn't really decide uh, again editorially what what the direction was going to be. So we we actually we actually pitched um, a year long story that had different parts. It wasn't going to be just one big story over a year. For the second year of the book, and I still have a bunch of the illustrations that Tom Grinberg did. Tom was supposed to take over the book, but he and I got shunted off onto Secret Defenders, which is a 
sort of strange side note story. Right. Our story was going to be was going to be Odin finally having enough of Thor's bullshit and turning him into a woman to teach him a lesson. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so Thor would have been a woman for about a year. Wow. You know, and it would have it would have been about you know macho sort of misogynist Thor literally walking in somebody else's boots for a year right. uh, and having to deal with having to deal with, you know, the kind of jerk that Thor is on a regular, on a, on a regular occasion. And, you know, it was going to be in Asgard in space uh, and editorial was just not, was not sure that that's the story they wanted, but they weren't sure exactly what story they did want. So we, you know, at the, at the end of the year, maybe a little bit more, I, I decided it was probably wise for me to, to walk away. And I had green lantern going on at DC anyway. So mm-hmm. it, it, it actually freed me up a little bit to do, to do some other things. Well, you also at that point started up a, a strange little mini series called cosmic powers. It's a cool little one. Just uh, it takes a bunch of your characters that you've been playing with and created for the last few years and kind of puts them all together without the Silver Surfer. How did that one come about? That was pretty early on uh, in my time at Marvel. And and I remember being up at the office and, and Craig Anderson, Anderson saying to me, hey, do you want to do a six-issue miniseries? And I said, sure. What do you, you know, what do you want? What is it going to be? And he said, we have no idea. <laughs> nice. But, the, you know, the... The, the short version is that, you know, this was the this was the early 90s boom. Everything was selling. No matter what you put out, it was selling, you know, it was selling in six figures. And most of the time wow. it was it was selling in more than that. Like like Surfer on a regular basis sold 300,000 copies an issue. Incredible. Uh, obviously, you know, it was a much different time. So so publishers were churning out whatever they could. Because everything that came out sold like crazy. It was a speculator boom, and it wasn't necessarily that the books were good. It was just that they existed, and people were buying cases of them. So the notion of you know cosmic powers came about because Marvel wanted to fill the publishing spot, slot and said, "Hey, you, you got something." So I basically made up the the cosmic power storyline to you know to fill that publishing slot, and it was constructed the way it was because. We were going to do a six-issue miniseries, and all the issues were double size. That's a lot of pages to churn out. So, so I built each issue around a specific character, so we could have uh, different artists draw everything. We could have a bunch of different artists working on issues at the same time. Oh, okay. Rather than you know, I mean, the obvious choice is well, you have Ron Lim draw it all, but that's like two hundred pages from one artist. That's you know, that's a year's worth of work. Right. Or, you know, maybe not for Ron Lim is not a year's worth of work because Ron's pretty damn fast. But. He is, yeah. So the the you know it was really built that way so that we could have everybody working at the same time. Um, and I wanted to have, and I didn't want to just write a story and have six different people draw it. Or I guess we ended up with five different people over six issues. I, I wanted there to be a story reason why each issue looked different. So that's how we came up with different characters starring in each chapter and then went out and and found you know found enough artists to uh, to do all the issues that's great even even ron's two issues look different like he he approaches them differently so it's interesting that way um i th- i think he i think the thanos issue I, different inkers on each issue that would do it yeah that does make a difference but i think the Thanos issue, he, he did more as full pencils, and I think the other issue, he did more as a little bit more like breakdowns, and the inker was doing finishes. So you, you end up with a little bit different look on each one, but right. obviously still still very much Ron's work. Oh, yes, absolutely. But still fit the, uh, I guess, the, the thing that you were going for with the different artists and different looks. So that's that's really cool, actually. It's kind of a neat way of approaching it. Um, I, I remember, you know, liking the you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I remember liking the concept a lot mm-hmm. because we had, again, we had to work within, work within parameters. You know, we had to work within, all right, well, how do, how are we going to get this thing out in a short amount of time and, you know, actually be able to have, have it all drawn, have it all, you know, come out in sequence, just like some of the infinity Gauntlet crossover issues. The fact that you have to, that you have to work in a box that you're working with strictures on you. 
yeah. I think is is a lot of times is the mother of invention. You, you come up with ways to to make that make those parameters work, and hopefully you you know you're clever about it. Tell me a little bit about working with Ron Lim because uh, you worked with him a lot. Well, Ron, you know, is a terrific meat and potatoes uh, superhero artist, and that mm-hmm. is that is not damning him with faint praise at all. He's, you know, he's he's a terrific artist who is very very good at what he does. Yeah, um, he's consistent. I learned a huge amount working with him. I mean, thank God I worked with somebody who knew what he was doing <laughs> early in my career because it was that's that's the biggest light bulb goes on moment. Uh, of any comic writer's existence is when you you see your first script turned into artwork. If you, you see the page that you wrote turned into something real and concrete, that's still the best part of this job, and it it, it you can't you can't substitute it. Um, it's just the best thing in the world to see what was in your head previously now made real. <clears throat> and working with Ron, he you know he took my scripts and turned them into real stories. So I learned a huge amount working with him and, um, you know, and obviously I enjoyed the hell out of working with him. He's just a terrific artist and he's a, he's a lovely dude. I mean, we were both obviously very young men at the time. Uh, I think I might be a couple years younger than Ron, but we were kids. Uh, we were kids and, and really had the enthusiasm of youth as we approached the, the, the gig. Right, and obviously Ron was one of the was one of the Marvel workhorses at that time, and he's such a good dude that he never wanted to he never wanted to tell an editor no. He would you know he would actually call me and say, oh man, they offered me you know this Venom miniseries or an annual, or they needed a backup story. Or he was always the go to guy because they knew he would find some way to do it. And I think that's one of the reasons that that you know Ron almost became overexposed at that period because. I mean, there were months where he had three or four issues on the stands. Right. You know, yeah, that's incredible. He'd full pencil one, do breakdowns on two others, do layouts on a fourth. He was really the, you know, he was really the the workhorse for them. And, um, you know, I think in some ways, after that period, you know, Ron was Ron sort of fell out of favor a little bit because I think some of the newer newer editors and newer readers came in and went, oh, geez, you know, we don't want to work with that guy. He draws everything. Well, he was saving your asses. That's why he was drawing everything. Wow. That's unfortunate. So, uh, you know, and Ron and I are still friends. We see each other at shows, and we've, you know, we've kicked around the idea now and again of, of doing something else together. So I hope that works out at some point. Because yeah. he was um, obviously hugely instrumental in me having a career. Can you give me an example of a way – that he, that's something that he taught you in those early years? I don't, it, you know, obviously he didn't set out to teach me any lessons. It was just a, it was a question of, I, I think what I learned to great extent from, from working with Ron is, you know, what I needed to describe in the panels and how to see the story visually. Okay. That's a trait or that's a skill that anybody who's writing comics needs to have. You have to be able to see the page in your head um, so that you can properly write it for an artist to actually draw. And then, and then what the artist does with it is, is kind of, that's, that's their collaborative aspect. That's, that's what they bring to the, to the party. Artists are not human Xerox machines, just taking the ideas out of your head from the script and putting it on the page. They're the artists are really the directors of, of this whole, of this whole collaboration of this, uh, of this process. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it was somewhat intuitive for me because I had, I had taken a lot of film classes. I was a, I was a comic reader. I was a big film fan. So I, I understood the, the concepts of telling stories visually, but you, you hone what you do by doing it. Um, so working with Ron and seeing how he would translate my scripts into his pages and what he would emphasize and what was not necessary and he could leave out or minimize you as the writer sort of glean all that from from getting those pages back um you 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 learn a lot of lessons when you look at those pages Hmm. um you see you see what works in your script and what doesn't um and you don't make those mistakes again the next time as you were working up to issue number 100 did you know that that was going to be 
Uh, were you purposely going to step off Silver Surfer at that time? Yeah, I felt like I was. I felt like I was losing steam on the book. I wasn't quite sure where we were going to go after issue 100. And I, and, and I think when you, when you step back and and go, oh, I don't, I don't know exactly where we're headed for this. Um, I think it's, it's usually a sign that you know you've kind of the the well is running dry and you should yeah and you should shuffle off to Buffalo. So so I felt like you know, I felt like I could get to 100 and and be pretty satisfied and then and then go do some other things because there were other you know there were other opportunities in front of me. Mm-hmm. It uh, it's an interesting you know now I look back at it and go oh well I think I could have had more stories I've got other things to other things to to explore with with the character um, but I did ultimately kind of come to the conclusion over you know 50 issues and and you know whatever I was on the book four years five years. I think I came to the conclusion that that Surfer was almost better as a supporting character in his own book than he was a lead character, um, right? Because he's he's an alien. He's not us. He's not of us. Um, so I think keeping him at arm's length was probably a better idea than making him front and center. Certainly, the the last. The last uh, story arc that I did where he was with the Fantastic Four, that's one of the reasons that FF is in the book, other than the fact that I wanted to write the FF, <laughs> yeah. was that I wanted to I wanted to get back to him being kind of the alien. I wanted to get back to him being, in some ways, a mirror for humanity. No no pun intended. <laughs> he was a device to tell to tell stories about the human condition, even though he's not human. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and then you returned for a, a graphic novel called dangerous artifacts. Yeah. Well, I didn't actually return. I, I had written that a couple of years earlier. Oh, and they just uh, kind of pulled it out of the, out of the drawer. Well, it had, it had been, um, it was being drawn for years. I literally years. Oh, um, okay. So when I was fairly early on in my run, uh, and things were going well, uh, Tom DeFalco, who was the editor in chief at the time, called me up and said, "Hey, we've got this. I, I met this artist in Italy. I think I suspect Tom was maybe over at the Luca convention in Luca, Italy. And that's interesting because I just went to Luca last year, and this is the first time I've actually thought about this is where Tom must have met Claudio Castellini. So they sent me. They said, you know." We found this artist. He's a he's a huge John Buscema fan. He really wants to do a surfer story. We, we've got a bunch of his work here. Do you want to check it out and see if you want to work with him? So they sent me up. Um, you know, obviously this was this was many moons ago. So they sent me an actual box of actual comics rather than sending rather than sending a PDF. Nice. So I got all of this all of this all of these Italian comics. Uh, Dan Dare and Nathan Never, the kind of stuff that Benelli still publishes. And by this guy named Claudio Castellini, and it was just jaw-dropping, just amazing-looking stuff. And you know, I immediately called up, called up to Falcon. I said, "Yeah, let's, you know, I'll, I'll work with this guy on anything. I'll crawl across broken glass to work with this guy." <laughs> uh, Craig Anderson was the editor on the project, and there was some go-between. We, there was a, <clears throat> there was an editor on staff named Joe Andriani, a, an assistant editor who spoke Italian, so he was actually the the go-between. With Claudio, uh, Joe Andriani, uh, was a really good dude. Um, unfortunately, passed away a number of years ago. Uh, okay. I think he left, left Marvel to become a cop, I believe. Oh wow! And uh, so, but but Joe Andriani was was um, the guy like translating my messages to Claudio and and back and forth, and and I basically said, you know, what do you, you know, what do you want to draw? What kind of stuff do you want to do? And he said. Uh, he said he wanted to draw the Kree and the Skrulls and spaceships and and a woman and like you know cool landscapes like Mobius and I was like all right well let me let me see what I can come up with so that's what Dangerous Artifacts has all that stuff in it yeah uh, <laughs> wow and it is um, it's ultimately I think the most beautiful looking book I've ever been involved in mm, wow and and it took. Claudio literally years to finish the book. It was a, it's a 48 page story. 
and it, I think it took him at least two years, probably three years. And um, <laughs> by the time he finished it, a new broom was sweeping clean at Marvel, and Tom was no longer the editor in chief. Uh, there were other people in charge. You know, group editors had little different fiefdoms now. Yeah. So by the time Claudio was done with it, Tom was no longer there. So there wasn't, you know, like the the guy who sired this project in the first place was no longer there, and honestly, nobody really cared about it anymore. Uh, I think Mark Grunewald kind of kind of looked after it as best he could, but it was just, you know, it was not a it was not a priority. When it was initially started, the plan was to do an oversized black and white version uh, of the story and then a regular comic size version in color. And by the time Claudio got done with it, there was no longer interest in making it a big deal. It was just a book they were going to put out. Oh, um, that's too bad. So if you if you look at the Marvel version of Dangerous Artifacts, the color version, the artwork is so detailed, the color doesn't really work with it that well. A lot of the lines closed up in the art, and the crops are all wrong on the book. Like, people's heads and hands and stuff are cut off by the edges of the book. Oh, because he was drawing it in a magazine format. Well, he was, he, you know, I don't, I don't know why Marvel didn't scan it properly. Like, like all of this stuff was, was cut off. Uh, you can look through the book and see like top of tops of heads are cut off by the tops of pages. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's, you know, it's heartbreaking uh, really that, um, so, you know, Claudio works in this thing for like three years and then when it comes out, you know, it's a pale imitation of what it could have been. Wow. Yeah. He was seriously heartbroken, uh, that, that this is what it had turned into. Claudio actually flew over from Rome with the originals on his lap on the plane. He he did not trust Federal Express to deliver the pages to Marvel, so he literally flew over. Oh, man. And that's how they treat him. Holy cow. Carry, carrying the pages and actually and actually worked, worked on the pages, making changes, uh, adding details in the Marvel offices, until, and the, the pages were absolutely breathtaking. I went down and saw the pages in person, met him. The pages are breathtaking. There was no reason for him to still be working on them, but he couldn't let them go. Wow. You know, he, yeah. he kept noodling on the pages until Joe Andriani, the editor, literally took the pages away from him <laughs> right. and locked him, in a, locked him in a flat file and said, look, man, you're done. You know, you just got to yeah, stop. Yeah. <laughs> So it was, yeah, it was a disappointment by the time it, by the time it came out and, and didn't really, you know, nobody paid too much attention to it. Yeah. So in the ensuing years, um, I did a, I did a convention in Germany back in the early 2000s. And, um, one of the, one of the books at the show was a black and white version of the Silver Surfer graphic novel, uh, in hardcover in German. And, uh, really? You know, it's a it's a breathtaking looking book. Uh, there was a there was a black and white version in Italy that was oversized. The, the German version was oversized, and not uh, within the last two years. Yeah, I think probably two years. Um, there's a Spanish version of the book. It's an oversized hardcover shot from all of Claudio's originals. Wow! In black and white, so the gray tones and yeah. and the airbrushing and everything that he did to those pages shows up the way it's supposed to. He supervised um he supervised the the production and the printing of the book. And they, you know, I I got an introduction in the book and it's it's finally the version of the book that that should have been printed in the first place, but no one in America knows about it. No no one in America has seen the book. I mean, I had a few extra copies of the Italian softcover version. Yeah. And I you know, I gave them to friends who begged me for copies. So there's, you know, so there's this this oversized hardcover from Spain. Uh, I think I think Panini did it in Spain, and um, it's it's an absolutely gorgeous book. I mean, someday I hope it comes here. I, I hope that they can sort of get the files from Panini in Spain and bring them here. Yeah, do an artist edition or something like that because it's it's literally one of the most beautiful books I've. I've ever been involved in and uh it's never received the the production over here that that is is it's worthy of wow so i i think that might have been my my last surfer project even though it was actually started fairly <laughs> right. early on yeah i think that's true yeah 
What a great story. What a, that's incredible. Wow. Okay, so I want to ask you a little bit about your current stuff that you're doing now. You are editor-in-chief of Ominous Press, and you had a Kickstarter that was successful just a few months ago. Can you tell me about that? Ominous Press is uh, me, Bart Sears, is the chief creative officer. Andy Smith is the art director. Sean Husbar is our publisher and CEO. Um, and that's it's all guys that I've been friends with for, for 20 years. Uh, Ominous Press existed in the 90s and um you know in that boom time when everything was selling and and you know silver surfer was selling 300,000 copies a month and sometimes twice a month a lot of smaller publishers cropped up and got into the market ominous press was one of them which was founded by by bart and i was friends with bart still am obviously uh right and i was going to start doing some work for ominous press but then you know, the bottom dropped out of the market. You know, death of death of Superman was a huge boom, and then the speculator boom sort of got shops ordering way more than they could ever ever sell, and the bottom kind of dropped out of the market. When the bottom dropped out of the market, a lot of small publishers, including Ominous Press, ended up ended up going under. So, flash forward to years later, you know, five years ago or so. Uh, I was at um, the Baltimore convention with Bart, the first show that Bart had done in you know quite a while. Andy was there, and our friend Sean flew down from Buffalo to to hang out with us uh, on Sunday. And it was the first time that I think the four of us had been in a room together since 2005, maybe or something like that. At least at least 10 years, and probably longer. Actually, it must be longer. And so from, from just hanging out together, the conversation of, well, maybe we should do a comic together. And maybe we should start the company again. And maybe we should do a bunch of different things. So Ominous started as a, as a seed, and it has grown into you know, a, a, an ongoing publishing concern with, uh, with some of the old Ominous, Ominous Press properties, which we are publishing through IDW. Uh, I did a Dread Gods miniseries with Tom Ranney. We're currently doing uh, Demigod, Andy Smith and I. That's also publishing through IDW. And then we do have other projects that might go through IDW at some point, but we're doing ourselves via Kickstarter and doing art books. We did an art book with uh, Bart Sears, Andy Smith, Graham Nolan, Jim Starlin, uh, Daryl Banks from my Green Lantern days is doing one. Um, Daryl and I have a graphic novel called Harkins Raiders uh, that we kickstarted back in December, and Daryl's in the home stretch on that. So we've got a bu- we're doing a bunch of different things with a bunch of different people at Ominous, and um, it's kind of the uh, you know it's the equivalent of of getting together with a bunch of friends and putting on a show in the backyard. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, it's it's I mean it's it's a huge amount of work. I can tell you that without any hesitation whatsoever. It's, Certainly, there's, yes. There's a hell of a lot more work involved in being your own publishing company than just being a writer and sending your script in. But it's you know it, it's that much more satisfying as well. Uh, so I still do you know I still do other writing for other publishers, but the majority of my time is is spent um, writing and editing for Ominous Press. Is there anything else in particular that you want to let the listeners know about? Uh, let's see. I just, I think this week, my last issue of uh, Fathom came out. I wrote uh, this season of Fathom for uh, for Aspen. Mm-hmm. And so going back to, you know, going back to uh, one of Michael Turner's signature characters after right. having written Witchblade for 10 years or whatever it oh, was. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, was was a lot of fun. I had a great time working with the Aspen guys and might be doing a little bit more. Uh, I'm currently doing Turok for Dynamite because um, they said dinosaurs and I said yes. Uh, <laughs> Good. And and a bunch of stuff for, for Ominous. I'm work, like I said, I'm working on uh, uh, Harkins Raiders, which is a World War II story with Daryl Banks. Last year we did uh, Beasts of the Black Hand, which is a kind of a diesel punk horror espionage story conceptualized and created by uh, my friend Paul Harding, who's a sculptor for DC and Gentle Giant and a bunch of different places. Um, so that's a post-World War One kind of monster story. Um, Matthew Dow Smith drew that. 
and Matt is uh, just starting on the second volume of that. And there's a bunch of other stuff that we're discussing right now that I'm not supposed to talk about. So okay, but uh, as I've done, uh, I guess my whole career really is I I like to play with different toys and I like to stretch different muscles. So I, I'm always trying to do as many different kinds of projects as I can. I, I don't want to just write superheroes. I don't want to just write horror stories. I want to do a variety of things so I can so I can stretch a variety of muscles as I do do my job. I you know I'm this job is really making things up. So I want to make up as many different things as possible. I like you know I like playing with other people's toys. I also like making my own toys. Hmm. Mm-hmm. As a, I think as a, one of the blessings of being a writer is that um, you can do both things you can um you can do creator own stuff and you can do uh work for hire stuff at the same time because you know you're constantly working on three or four or five or six different projects so you you can stretch different muscles it's it's tougher for an artist because really they're you know hopefully at best doing a page a day yeah. and you you kind of have to pick what you're going to do you're going to do your creator own book or you're going to do a work for hire book. There's, there's not a whole lot of artists who can do more than one project at a time. Uh, so that's the fact that writers can do that is one of the benefits. And I'm going to take advantage of that for as long as I can. Well, people can find you online, um, on Twitter. You're very active on Twitter at Ron Mars and you have a website. Uh, it is also Ron Mars. It's just ronmars.com. Ronmars.com. It's it's there. It hasn't been updated in a while. Okay, so, but in the next few months, plans are to sort of refurbish it and get it get it up and running again, or get it. It's still up and running, and I'm glad people can find me there. But yep. I'd like to have more content and put some stories up there that maybe haven't been seen other places, and and you know have a, have a little bit more robust presence there. And uh, there's a there's a there's a Facebook account that's you know really kind of a fan account that's run for me. I probably couldn't find the Facebook account um, <laughs> uh, with a gun to my head, but everything that goes, goes on Facebook eventually finds its way to me. If anybody wants to reach out to me there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, part of this job is, is being accessible yep. uh, and interacting, which, which is a part that I like a lot actually. Well, and I thank you for interacting with us today on this podcast. It's it such, such a great um, insight into this era of Silver Surfer and just to learn more about you. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Curtis. It was great. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you.